in my, in my haste to get out the announcements this morning, I did miss one. Um, there is a uh, college luncheon next week. It's hosted by the Copelands at, the, at their farm. They'd love to have you college kids uh, come and be a part of that uh, next next Sunday at, right after church. You can see Crystal or Nick about that for directions to get out there. And they'll put a post on online for you to see that. But this morning I invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at faith this morning. Uh, which may seem odd because we, we, we talk about faith every Sunday and, uh, but we want to look at, look at, uh, the text this morning, very familiar passage of scripture. We're going to look at these three verses and we're going to see, uh, we're going to ask three questions about these verses, uh, and we're going to get three answers. But follow with me if you would, Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the substance, it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence or it's the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is by faith, the elders, the people of old, they obtained a good report or they received commendation. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen, notice this, the thing, everything that is seen were not made of things which do appear. Go to the Lord with me in prayer, if you would, this morning. Father God, we are so grateful and thankful that you are a holy God. And yet you choose to call us children through the blood of your, Jesus, through your, of your son, Jesus Christ. You, you who are holy and separate, through Jesus we can call you Father. And what an what a overwhelming thought that is this morning. Father, I, I pray that we would examine our hearts this morning. That, that we would look and see what it is we're truly putting our trust in. What, what are we placing our hopes on for the future? Father, and I pray that we will find that it is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. It is nothing but the, but the perfect, complete work of Jesus Christ and His person that we are placing our, our faith and trust in this morning. Father, I'm sure without you I can do nothing. I ask that your words would be my words. That my thoughts would be your thoughts. Dear God, that you would do what only you can do. That your Holy Spirit would draw and convict and transform lives through the power of your word. Father, I'm sure that your word has that power. I am sure that your Holy Spirit has that power. I do not. So once again, may my words be your words. And and may our hearts be in tune with yours. And may we not miss you this morning because you'll speak. Help us not to miss you. Help us not to to just be here because that's that's what we do on Sunday, dear God. But help us to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've always been a big fan of trivia. Uh, maybe it's just the way my brain is wired. I don't know, but I can latch on to the most random and obscure facts that don't really mean a, a whole hill of beans. But I can latch on to those and then remember them at a later time. It's uh, maybe it's it's what my superpower is. I don't know, but it's not much of one. Uh, and one of my all-time favorite trivia shows is Jeopardy. Right? And you all seen Jeopardy? It's been on the air for over thirty-five years. Uh, 
And I'm pretty good at it unless an episode has a bunch of categories like, you know, 18th century French poetry or something. And then I'm like, yeah, I got nothing. Let's change the channel. I'm like, yeah, nothing's happening with that, you know. But for the most part, I'm pretty good at it. Uh, given, given, of course, what the categories are, you know, if, if, if they're in my wheelhouse, right? Uh, but the thing that makes Jeopardy unique is that... Uh, it, it, it's the only game show, the only trivia show that actually supplies the contestants with the answer. And it's up to, or, and it's up to the, uh, contestants to give the question. That's why everything must be stated in the form of a question. You know, like if, uh, you were to select college football, football for 1000 and the answer was following the 2018 season, this team was the only program in the state of Georgia to win their bowl game. You wouldn't have to be Alex Trebek to know that the answer, of course, is what is Georgia Southern University? But I digress here, you know. Well, this morning, I believe these three verses in Hebrews give us three answers regarding faith. And Lord willing, we're going to look at the three questions, the right three questions that correspond to the answers given in the text. But before we can do that, we need to talk a little bit about context because context is king. We talked about that in our Sunday school class this morning. We don't want to just pull a few verses out and use them as proof text for anything. Hebrews is written to encourage and also to warn uh, Hebrew converts to Christianity who were living in Rome. Uh, th- these, these converts were under extreme amounts of, uh, of persecution. They were pressured to go back to the old covenant, the old way, the old ceremonial observances of the law, the sacrifices. So the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, and we don't know, it doesn't say in the text, we have our guesses. But he crafts this magnificent argument. And the argument is this. Jesus Christ is far superior to the old covenant. And in fact, he is who the old covenant and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the law were all pointing to. They were all pointing to him. And he is the fulfillment of that. And so to give, to give in, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old way, it's foolishness. Because Jesus is the culmination of true Judaism. Jesus Christ has put an end to the sacrifices by being the great high priest who offered himself as the once and for all perfect sacrifice that actually can do something about your sins. Remember, in in the Old Testament, they sacrificed every year uh, bulls and goats, and if they were too poor, they sacrificed turtle doves. And all those things, all they did, they, they just put a covering over sin, and they just rolled it back till the next year, until the next year, until the next year. But Jesus Christ came, and he offered himself... As the once for all sacrifice that could actually do something about yours and my sin. It could actually purify us from that sin, unlike the animal sacrifices. Because Jesus is who he, he says he is, and because he has done what he has done, these ancient uh, Roman Hebrews and uh, who are believers, and us as modern believers, we can enjoy unprecedented access to God through faith in him. And, and so chapter 10 ends, because of these truths, we do not have to be the ones who shrink back. We do not have to be the ones who turn back but, and be destroyed for faithlessness. But we can respond with grace-based, faithful endurance. And that's where chapter 10 ends. And then chapter 11 opens. Remember, there's no chapter and verse breaks in the original text. So it's just, he, he's continuing the argument The author of Hebrews provides us with a vivid picture of here's what faith actually looks like. Here's some examples of people who exhibited, displayed, lived out this genuine faith 
in the Old Testament. And so this morning, I, I do want us to examine our own faith and ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ supremely central to my faith? Is he what I am basing all of my hopes and all of my trust on? Is my hope truly built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the old hymn says? So let's jump into the text this morning. Let's, let's ask three, let's see the three questions that, that our text is giving us the answer to this morning. Number one, we're going to see what is faith. Number two, we're going to ask the question, what is the end of your faith? And number three, we're going to ask the question, what is the object of your faith? We're going to see how the text answers these questions. And Lord willing, we're going to see why it matters we get the answers to these questions right. So let's look at the first one. What is faith? We find our answer in verse 1. Look at at it back with me again. Now, faith is the substance. It's the assurance, the reality of things hoped for. It is the evidence or conviction or proof of things not seen. How is faith typically thought of in our culture? Usually it's just a placeholder word. For someone's religious beliefs, regardless of how tightly or loosely they are held, and also regardless of how much or little they actually impact a person's daily life. That's how faith is typically thought of in our culture. It's, it's just a religious belief and it is what it is. In fact, we're told by society that faith is a private matter, right? You've heard that before. Faith is a private matter. We don't discuss this in public, you know, in, in polite society. And so it's, it's inappropriate to discuss openly. It's inappropriate to pass a value judgment on, on whether someone's faith is, is superior or inferior to another's. Because the fact of the matter is people think that, that, that a person's faith is just as good as the next, right? And the reason they think this is because what they're actually saying is none of them really matter that much at all. Not in the, the, the quote unquote real world, not where we live, right? It's, it's, it's just some, some, it's some, some connection to our past before we got educated, before we got scientific, before the enlightenment happened. We, we could have these beliefs, but they don't really matter here in, in 2019 in the real world. That's how faith is thought of in our culture. And how is the faith, the word faith used in our culture? You know, it, it really gets little usage in the noun form. We don't talk about the, the noun faith a whole lot. But the verb does get a little bit more traction. But here's the problem is that our English language doesn't really have a word for the verb faith, does it? We can't really faith something. I don't faith anything. I don't go faithing and you don't go faithing. We use the word believe. That is the verb form of it. But... The problem is that the, the word believe is so misused and over-applied that we, we really don't have a concept of, of faith from the word believe. What, but what does it mean to believe? For some people, it's just mental assent. I agree that certain things are true. We believe these things to be true, right? For others, it's a mere agreement to the likelihood or probability that something is going to happen. Like we can look outside and it's cloudy and we say, oh, I believe it's going to rain. It's probable that it's going to rain. It's been misting all morning and it's been raining since July. So we think it's going to rain, right, today. It's a probability, right? It's a likelihood. I think this is based on the evidence I have before me. It's probably what's going to happen. 
And but then for others, it's just some blind leap, right? That's what they think of faith. You're supposed to take this blind leap without any sort of empirical evidence, without any sort of data. You're just supposed to, you're just supposed to believe because you believe, right? Let me cross my fingers and hope that it's true. The question I have for you this morning, do any of those definitions, do they inspire you with any sort of confidence whatsoever? Really? That's what faith is? It's a, it's a blind leap? It's a, it's likelihood or probability? You know, even mental ascent doesn't do much for us, does it? Because I believe that the Bahamas are an island chain in, in the Atlantic Ocean. I've even been there, but it doesn't really do, it doesn't really impact my life in any sort of way, right? It doesn't. So it's not that. But regardless of what we say we believe, faith is what we are practically trusting in. It's, it's what we're, we're, it's, it's the basket into which we're placing all of our eggs, all of our hopes. That's what faith is. And how does scripture define faith? Because I think we'll see that, that, that how scripture defines it is, is something very different, very different than what the world does, or perhaps even we do. So let's look at it in our text. The first thing that, that the text says that faith is, it is the substance or assurance of things hoped for. So the word used here for substance or assurance, it's, it, it's a word that literally means to stand under. Uh, it, for example, it's, you are standing under a guaranteed agreement. Uh, and so faith then is this legitimate claim because it's literally under a, under a, 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 an agreement. It's literally under a standing, a legal standing. It, it is a le- legitimate claim that entitles someone to what is hoped for. It, it's the guarantee that what is hoped for will come to pass. For true believers, genuine faith is our, t- is, we could call it our title of possession. Uh, it's the Lord's guarantee to fulfill the fa- what he has birthed within us. And so what we see from our text here is faith is the ground. It is the basis. It is the support for our future hope. It is the assurance or confidence that we will receive the good things that we hope for through Jesus Christ. But what is this thing called hope? Because that's another word that our culture loves to butcher as well. It's certainly not mere wishing for or, or, you know, or desiring that certain things come to pass. Biblical hope is confident expectation. And the reason it's confident is because it's based on the promises of the word of God. It's not based on a, on a hope so, maybe so, a wish, a desire, uh, something that's within us. It's based on the word of God, the promises of God who is faithful. It's concerning those things which are yet to come. But it is that confident expectation that actively awaiting, I know it's going to happen because God's word says it's going to happen and he keeps his word. It is that confidence, that conviction. It is actively waiting. We see a good example of that in verse 13 in our text. If you'll skip down there, it talks about these. It's it's referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys. It's saying they all died in faith, not having received the promises. That is to say, they didn't see them fulfilled during their lifetimes. But notice, they saw them afar off. And they were persuaded of them and they embraced or welcomed them. That's a, that's a good example of it. That's a good definition of it. 
They didn't see the fulfillment in their lifetime, but they were persuaded of it. They welcomed it. They embraced it. They saw it afar off. They knew God is going to fulfill his word. I, I can I can bank my existence on it. In fact, they did all the way. Abraham did all the way. He was promised to be a great nation, the father of a, of a great nation. He was promised a land. And yet when he died, he all he had was one son and a burial plot. That's all he had. And yet he believed God and trusted him that God was going to keep his word. Also, we see from our text that faith is something else. Notice back in, in verse 1. It, it is the evidence. It is the conviction of things not seen. So, so the word given here for evidence or conviction is, is this noun. It means a proof. It is, it is an inner persuasion from the Holy Spirit. Confirming the faith that God has birthed in us. You see, we don't believe, we don't place our, trace, our trust in something simply as a matter of, of blind faith. A blind leap of faith. Nobody does that. Nobody places their hopes and their dreams in something that they, they know nothing about. That they have no data of. That, that they've never heard of. Nobody does that. You would be foolish to, to, to place your trust in someone or something you had no knowledge of. How would you know that, that, that they were worthy of your trust? How will you know that, that they're able of your trust? Able to save you. But quite the contrary, genuine faith, and that's what we see in the scripture here, is it exhibits trust in that which is proven to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus puts it this way in the Gospel of John in chapter 16, verse 8. He says, and when he's talking about the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he's going to reprove or convict the world. It's the verb form of, of our noun here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the same word, it's just the verb form. The Holy Spirit will con- convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Faith, then, we see here is the Holy Spirit... It's a Holy Spirit given proof, an evidence within ourselves that he, uh, he places there of things not yet seen. It results in a firm conviction in those things. I cannot see it yet, but I'm persuaded nonetheless because the Holy Spirit has worked in my heart. I believe that one day my faith will become sight because of the work of the Holy Spirit within me. So what we see about our faith, about, about faith in this passage, it unites both the now and the not yet. The experienced, because there is an experience, there's the work of the Holy Spirit on us, and the hope for, the things that are yet to come, and it produces rock solid, unshakable certainty based on the promises of God, not anything else. So the question this morning is, can you say that about your faith? Is it foundational? Is it rock solid? Is it the guarantee of God? Is it something birthed in you, a conviction birthed in you by the work of the Holy Spirit that proves what cannot be seen yet? That's what genuine faith is. But we need to ask another question that's a little more personal. And that's this. What is the end of your faith? What is the end of your faith? We see this in verse 2. Notice, for by it, that is to say, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. That is to say, they received commendation. So what is the end of your faith? This is a question concerning the goal or the purpose or the end result of your faith. In other words, what will I get for what I am placing my trust in? For all of us sitting here, 
and everyone in existence. This life will end. That's, that's no surprise. But it, it will end either in commendation or condemnation. And what we place our trust in will lead us to one of these two ends, one of these two results. So here's the question. Is the end of your faith, your faith, I'm not talking about your mama's faith, I'm not talking about your daddy's faith, your grandparents' faith who took you to church when you were a kid, your faith, is it leading you to commendation or is it leading you to condemnation? And we also need to ask a follow-up question to that because who is giving the commendation, right? Because that kind of matters too, right? It doesn't matter if my lawyer thinks I'm good. He's, I paid him to, right? I paid him to, 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 to think I'm innocent, right? It doesn't matter if my mama thinks I'm good because she does anyway, right? She loves me. But it doesn't matter if, if, if they think you're good, if judge and jury say otherwise, right? Because the judge and jury are the ones that matter, right? And so our text is telling us that the only commendation that matters is the one you get from God. Because he is whom we will all stand before and give an account. He is the judge. He is the jury. And furthermore, what we see, it is only genuine faith that grants us access to that commendation. Look look at it in the text in in verse 2. Notice it says, by it, that is to say, by faith, the elders received a good report. They were commended. Well, who are these elders? Who are these people of old? In context, they would be the ancestors of the Hebrews that the writer is addressing. These are the men and women of genuine faith who lived by that faith during the Old Covenant. These are people like Abel. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness, or he was commended that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. We see from verse 4, Abel, because of his genuine faith, God declared him righteous. He was commended before God, the righteous judge. His brother Cain, on the other hand, he was condemned because his deeds proved that he had an evil, unbelieving heart. But let's look at another example. Enoch, the man Enoch, we, we, we only have a few verses of him in Genesis, but this is verse 5 of Hebrews 11. Notice what it says, by faith, the same genuine rock-solid faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. Translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, or he was commended that he pleased God. That was his commendation. Because of his genuine faith, Enoch received the stellar commendation that God was pleased with him. And in fact, verse 6 lets us know that it is impossible for God to be pleased with us without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, as it says, verse 6, quite clearly. Let's look at another example. Skip down to verse 39. The the chapter culminates this way. It says, all these, so every, every example, Old Testament example that was given in Hebrews 11, all these, having obtained a good report or commended through faith, all, all the people listed there in Hebrews 11, they received commendation from God because of the genuine faith that was evidenced in their life. So what we see about those who were commended is this. They exhibited genuine faith, that faith pleased God, and that faith was 
accredited to them for righteousness before God. You know, Jesus describes the commendation this way in Matthew's gospel. It is one that results in an eternity of endless joy, of unfathomable blessing, being in the very presence of God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 21 and 34. He says, his Lord shall say unto him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And, and verse 34 says, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come. Ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that is the commendation. But what is our default? Because I think that's a good question. Do we all naturally stand in line to receive this commendation from God? I I I think we know we don't. And I I think scripture is crystal clear to that. Our default setting from the factory is condemnation, right? Right? not commendation. We are born condemned. And if that weren't enough, we have a lifetime of evidence to prove that, that the default setting was accurate. And in fact, remember last week in, in, in John chapter three, we, we learned that God doesn't even have to condemn us because our own sin, our own unbelief is enough to condemn us before him. That's, that's what we read about last week in John three eighteen. We learned we are condemned already. Because of unbelief. And later in that same chapter, John 3.36, we learn that the wrath of God is abiding on all those who do not believe. And they will not see life. That is our default setting. And Jesus describes the, the condemnation this way in Matthew's gospel. It is one, it results in an eternity of suffering, of regret, of anguish, separated forever from the presence of God. He says this in, in, in that same passage in Matthew 25, verse 30. He says, cast you the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall he say unto them on the, on the left hand, depart from me. You cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so the question this morning is, which one is your faith leading you to? Does it, do, do, does does your faith even account for the end? And how can you know the answer to that question? I believe you can by asking yourself this simple follow-up question to whatever you're trusting in this morning. And it's two words. The question is very simple. Then what? Let me illustrate this. Because what we're saying about faith, remember, it's not just something you say you believe. It's what you're placing. You're actually entrusting your life and the weight of your existence to. But then what? So maybe this morning, let's give a few examples. You're trusting in financial stability. You know, living within your means, free of debt, that's an admirable ambition. But then what? Then what? Achieve that goal, don't achieve that goal. How does that account for the end? Maybe your goal is to, is to get married and raise a family. To be fruitful and multiply is a noble aspiration. But then what? What comes next? How does that goal prepare you to stand before God? Maybe you're, def- maybe you're focused on a degree and a career. Education, you know, education, honest work. 
That adds dignity to a person's life. It's a good thing in and of itself. But then what? Will the right career confer commendation from the Lord? Folks, I'm not asking sarcastically this morning. We must take an honest evaluation of what we're practically placing our trust in. Not what we say we do, not what, not what we affirm in our head that we do. Not that we can quote, not, but what we're actually trusting in. You see, the problem with all the examples that I've, I've given, and I could give countless others, and you could too. The problem with all of them is they're short-sighted, every one of them. They fa- all of them fail to account for the end, the commendation or the condemnation. You know, it's not even enough to trust in being a good citizen, living a moral, clean life, or even living a religious life, being faithfully devoted to a religion. Those things, however good we may think they are, cannot give us commendation before God. God is not pleased with any of that. That does not give us right standing before God. So the question is, why on earth would I place my trust in any one of those things? Why on earth would I do that? Let me give you an example from one of Jesus' parables, because I think this, this really sums it up. This is Luke 12, very famous parable, uh, beginning in verse 16. So Jesus spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Notice he's asking the question, then what? Now what? what now what do I do? He says, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Of course, I would like to ask him, how many years is eternity? That's another question. But he says, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But notice verse 20, but God said unto him, you fool. This night your soul shall be required of you. And then whose shall those things be which you have provided? And Jesus sums the parable up this way. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do do you notice in this parable how the rich man's goal had to keep changing? He was trying to answer the question, then what? But every time he thought he had the answer, the question kept popping back up. He started out to be a successful farmer. And once he achieved that goal, it still didn't get him where he needed to be. So he had to move the finish line further down the field. Then he worked on building his infrastructure to to grow his business. But it still wasn't enough. So he had to move the bar once again. This time it was to set up for retirement and a life of ease and pleasure. Surely he had the right end in mind now. What better goal can there be than to have the means to enjoy life? But then, God called his number. And all that he had labored for, and all that he had trusted in to provide security and peace, they were unable to help him. Because none of those things accounted for the end of his life. None of those things gave him right standing with God. And he found himself empty-handed and ashamed, having wasted his entire life on things that really didn't matter in the long run. He trusted that this life was all there was, but sadly, he was mistaken. And so that's the question I have to ask you this morning. Is that is that person you? 
Are you trusting in that this life is all there is? But this leads us into our third question. Because see, the man in the parable, he had placed his faith in the wrong object. So we ask the question, what is the object of your faith? And this is verse 3. It says this, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And I think we know this, but regardless of how religious or irreligious a person is, everybody exhibits faith. Everybody is trusting in something or someone to provide peace and security. You are, I am, everybody is. And I suppose this is burying the lead somewhat, somewhat, but... The only way to have the right end of your faith is to also have the right object of your faith. And hopefully you've been asking that question in your mind throughout the sermon. You know, so we're supposed to have genuine faith, but faith in what? Faith in whom? That speaks to the object of our faith. Let's tackle that question. What does this verse have to say about having the correct object of our faith? The answer, quite simply, is everything. It has everything to say about it. Let's look at it. By proper faith, notice that in verse 3, we understand that the universe, that, that includes everything you can see, everything you can evaluate through scientific methods, and even things we can't yet, but that we will one day. Everything in the universe was created by God. But who is this God? Our verse clearly lets us know one thing. And that says, you and I, we are not that God. God is invisible. Things that are seen are made by things that are not seen. Things that are seen, stars, planets, animals, you and I. We were not created by other things you can also see. We were all made by the invisible God. And we've been made by the invisible God to glorify him, not ourselves. So to love or to put our trust in in anything else is to put our trust in a lesser thing. And it's not merely foolishness, it is idolatry. It is open rebellion to God's design. And that leads us to eternal condemnation. So this gives us a pretty important litmus test this morning of evaluating the object of our faith. Can you see it? Can you physically touch it? Can you work for it? If you can do any of those three, then number one, it it is not God. And number two, because it is not God, it cannot hold the weight of your eternity. And that being said then, it cannot and must not be the object of your faith. I don't care how good it is or how good it seems. Not only is it unable to be the object of your faith, it is unworthy to be the object as well. But that is the story of mankind. We have a knowledge of God, but we willingly suppress the truth about God that has been made known to us through creation, through his divine revelation. And we do not honor God as he deserves to be honored. That is the story of mankind. Instead, we foolishly exchange the glory of God for things we can see, and we give our hearts to created things instead of our creator. That's Romans 1 in a nutshell. That should be familiar with you. But since there is an all-powerful God who created all there is, you and I are not here accidentally. We are designed with purpose. And that makes you and me accountable to the one who designed us. 
And it's why the world seeks to erase and eradicate anything to do with creation and replace it with more naturalistic expectations or, or explanations. You know, if we are simply the results of random occurrence, that makes us be able to do whatever we want to do. Our lives are our own to live. Man is the measure of all things at that point. We can make the rules as we see fit. And we can try to maximize what will bring us the most glory, what will bring us the most pleasure during our existence. But the very fact that God does exist, that our creator God does exist, means that all of life is sacred. Every bit of it. Our Puritan forerunners, they used to use this Latin phrase, it was quorum deo, which means all of life is lived before the face of God. He sees all. And and because of that, nothing is neutral in life. Everything is related either rightly or wrongly to God. And all of our life must be focused on Him, not on self. Scripture tells us that in Hebrews 4.13. It says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. We all live before the face of God. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, with whom we have to give an account to. That there is a creator who is not us means that we, the created, are subordinate. And we are beholden to this creator. We will all stand before this God and who sees all and knows all, including the dark recesses of my heart that I don't want anybody else to see or know about. But he sees those and knows those. And we will all stand before God and give an account for the life lived in our bodies. But, and I know this is weighty, but Hebrews also gives us some good news. I know you're dying for something right now. But see, the gospel is good news, but it's good news about Jesus Christ. But there's... But it includes bad news, right? Because it includes bad news about us, about who we are apart from Christ. And see, that's the problem in, in, in evangelism a lot of times is we never give people the bad news. We expect them to believe in G- that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Well, so what? Why do I need him to die on the cross for me? We don't give the bad news. We don't give the bad news that we come from the factory condemned, that we need a savior. We don't give people that. But there is good news, and that's what we're getting to now, is because this creator God, he's not just some invisible force out there. He's not just the clockmaker that, that wound it and, and walked off. He is personal. He chose to step out of eternity and into time to reveal himself, to identify with us in our failings and our shortcomings, and then to redeem us from rebelliousness and idolatry. That's what Hebrews 1 says, verses 2 and 3. It says, God has in this last day spoken to, unto us by his son. And notice what it says about his son, Jesus Christ. It says, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Notice, by whom he also he made the worlds. That's the account of John 1 as well, isn't it? That, that Jesus Christ is creator. In verse 3 it says, who, this Jesus Christ, being the, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, this morning, Jesus Christ is not only our creator. He's not only the righteous judge with whom, uh, 
for whom everyone will stand in front of one day. But he is also our redeemer as well. He took all of the condemnation that was rightfully yours and rightfully mine. And he placed it upon himself on the cross. So that we might be forgiven and have an unshakable eternal hope. The remarkable thing about all this is Jesus Christ personally made a way for us. Rather than us being stuck condemned for eternity, he made a way through his own self, through, through his own perfect work that we could not do to offer us commendation. We, In other words, we get to be commended before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. None of our works can do that. But the, the, the perfect, complete work of Jesus Christ does that. That's good news this morning. That's really good news this morning. And we can be commended by seeing Jesus Christ and by judging him to be the only one worthy of our faith and trust. And, and then as the Holy Spirit convicts us, convicts us of our sin, convicts us of our need of a Savior, and convinces us that Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that, we simply and completely place the weight of our trust on him to forgive us and to save us. So the question for us this morning question for you, for me, is Jesus Christ alone the object of your faith? Because he will share no, no, he will share his glory with none other. Is Jesus Christ alone the object of your faith? He is the only one who can give you a proper end. You know, really, this is the same message as last week. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again to receive the commendation from God. But but the fact is, the church can't give it to you. Nor can your moral behavior. You must, trust, you must trust Christ as your only object of faith to have a right standing before God. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, cast yourself simply on Jesus. Let nothing but faith be in your soul towards Jesus. Believe him and trust in him. And you shall never be made ashamed of of your confidence. This morning, Jesus Christ is supremely worthy to be the object of your faith. He will never fail you. So as we get ready to close this morning, I want us to look at some practical implications. The first one is simple. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. If you're here this morning without Christ, He is the only way. Being a good person, that's not going to cut it. Coming to church faithfully, that's not going to cut it. Giving money in the plate, that's not going to cut it. It's not by our works, but by the complete and perfect work of Jesus Christ. Trust in that. Trust in him alone for salvation. This morning, if, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you, come. While he is calling, come. But also, a, a second implication this morning is examine your faith. What are you practically trusting in? Maybe you're trusting in Christ for salvation, you know, as sort of a, a layaway plan for, for eternity. But the gospel is for the here and now too, right? The gospel changes us here and now too. It's for all of life, not just eternity. Christian, don't trust in something else to provide peace and security when only Christ does that. And then third and finally, for those of us who are believers, share your faith. 
Who else this morning needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? The bad news about where they are, but the good news about what Jesus Christ did. Who else needs to move from condemnation and death to commendation and new life? Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we come to a time of invitation, our musicians come this morning. Faith, it's, it's not a hope so, maybe so, think so. It is, it is supreme confidence based on the promises of God. And they're available to you this morning if you'll come. Will you come this morning? In a moment, we'll say a prayer and then we'll have a time of, of invitation where we'll ask you to come. And you can pray at your seat. You can, you can pray down here at the front. But however the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, maybe it's, I need to, I, I need to give my heart to Jesus Christ. Maybe it is, you know, practically I'm trusting in other things other than Jesus Christ for, for my day to day walk. Or maybe it's, you know, this is really good news. I need to share this with somebody. And God has placed a certain person on your heart. Come and pray for that person this morning. And pray for yourself that God will give you the, the boldness, the courage, the wisdom to know how to share and when to share and what to share. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would uh, use it, that your Holy Spirit would provide liberty for the for us here this morning. Uh, I pray that, that no one would walk away being a being disobedient to the word uh, uh, that, that has challenged our hearts this morning. So Father, I, I pray for these things and, and j- just pray that your will would be done and that you would receive all glory for this. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand to our feet and sing.